0: in a country And after my shadow
1: Welcome back to the Camino Podcast episode 34. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. I don't watch a lot of gymnastics. I suppose it happens once every four years if I find myself near a television during the Summer Olympics. If there's one thing I've learned about gymnastics over the years, though, it's probably how important it is for a gymnast to stick the landing. They can do almost everything right, flipping and flying and flourishing, I'm sure there are technical terms for those maneuvers, but if they stumble through the dismount, much of their good work is undone. The problem is, it's hard to stick the landing. An abundance of energy and momentum comes in contact with the inertia of the floor, and the body goes flying off in unpredictable and undesired directions. It's equally challenging for pilgrims to stick the landing, to complete the pilgrimage, to bring their journey to a sense of closure that is fulfilling and lasting. We often feel that anxiety building in the walk's final days, with the passage into Santiago marked by a bittersweet melancholy. We feel the looming real world, the reimposition of the obligations of home, and for all of the excitement that might include, it can often be cast in the language of loss. The first days and weeks back at home can be filled with ambivalence, an emotional uncertainty that pervades all of our decisions. And as time passes, the doubts can accumulate, the questions can be haunting. Did we get what we should from this experience? Did we somehow fail in our pilgrimage? In this episode, I explore this subject with two pilgrims. Up first, it's Alexander John Shia, whose book, Returning from Camino, is the first to systematically examine this topic, offering practical advice for how one might manage this more successfully. Then, I speak with Ginny Bartolone, who has written about the process of facing her own anxiety and depression on pilgrimage, and how she used this experience as part of a healing journey. It is perhaps the most persistent question in pilgrimage talk, aside of course from how to get to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port and whether to wear shoes or boots. I hope you find some advice worth applying to your own pilgrimage over this next hour. Alexander John Shia is a writer, speaker, and ritualist, the founder and progenitor of The Journey of Quadratus, and the author of Returning from Camino, and he joins me now to talk about that process of returning home from our Camino. Thanks for talking with me, Alexander.
0: Dave, I've been looking forward to this. For me, it's a real honor, so thank you.
1: It goes both ways. As I was saying to you a moment ago before I hit the record button, There are a lot of new Camino-related books. They come out in droves, and it can be challenging for new publications to get noticed. However, I remember when yours was first released, there was immediate acclaim that here was a Camino book that didn't exist, that needed to be written. What brought you to write it?
0: There's the short story and the longer story. The short story is when I walked my own Camino in the year 2012, I had this intuition or knowledge that the returning home was going to have a lot of challenges in it. So I had some foreknowledge and preparation for what, in fact, was a difficult homecoming. But most of the friends and people that I met in that circle, that sort of Camino family that grows up and staying in touch over those first months after coming home, many of them really had a tremendous difficulty, I would almost say a paralysis upon coming home. Mm -hmm. And it was in that moment I said, somebody needs to write this book, and then right after that was a little small voice saying, I guess maybe you need to write this book.
1: Why? Why you?
0: Part of the reason is when I was in college, which was too many decades ago at the University of Notre Dame, there was this little-known professor who came to do seminars every springtime, and his name was Joseph Campbell, and this was long before Joseph (laughs) Campbell was known. It's like he was just another name in a long list of possible faculty. But I attended these springtime seminars, and he spun my world, and he kept talking about that the great human story has got four parts to it, and that the most important part of the human story is the fourth part. Everything leads up to the fourth part, And that's often where the story comes to fruition or falls apart. And the fourth part he called the return to community, once having gone on the quest. Mm -hmm. And that the return to community has work to it, and it has a rhythm to it. And in his language, it has an imperative. And that is, is that you must return from the quest with the wisdom and the power to serve. And I like to think of that as to serve yourself and to serve others, that there is something that awakens in you on the quest, but you don't really change on the Camino or you don't fully change on the Camino. What happens on the Camino is you become awake to what you want to do differently. And you might begin to do those changes when you're in that environment. But it depends on what you do when you get home and you're in your ordinary everyday world. And unless you're prepared for the current to rush against you when you're home rather than help you, that you've got to know and prepare yourself for a hundred or a thousand new choices once you're back home, which will bring what awakened in you on the Camino to be part of your everyday world in the ordinary environment that you left to go on the Camino. So I don't want to say the Camino is not transformative, but it tills the soil and it awakens us and it presents us the questions and the issues to face. But then we have to go home and we have to actually make those part of our everyday reality. And that's what Campbell meant, because the Camino in itself, when we're over in Spain, if we're not from Spain, can be like an elixir. And then we come back home and crash mm. and think it was all just a dream about some other place and some other person.
1: A possibility that could have existed but only exists in that short-term, faraway place.
0: Right. And that the work back home is going to be long and fairly arduous. As One of the things that I already knew before I went is that Friends and family who haven't gone through a growth or a change experience in their own life in some deeper way are not going to understand you. They're not going to understand what you experience, and they're not going to know how to support you. And in some ways, sometimes they even try to work against your growth. You need to be prepared for that.
1: You mentioned Campbell, and as we set the table to go deeper into your framework and your thoughts on what this return process should look like, it also seems important to talk about the framework that you've developed as an overarching paradigm for thinking about this, and you call it the journey of quadratus. Right. So what is that, and how did you develop it, and how does it play into the approach that you take in the book?
0: So Campbell talked about orally with us back in the early 70s when I was in college um, that the great human story has got four parts to it. And he named those four parts, hearing the summons to the journey, part one. Part two is facing trials and obstacles. Part two is, is receiving the boon, his word, or the gift, or one might say the insight. And the fourth part is then returning to community to enact that gift. Well, I also in college was an anthropologist, and I discovered that all the world's great rites of initiation are developed as having four parts. And they've got different words, but very much the same rhythm and pace that Campbell had lined out. And then from my anthropology work, I went into theology, and I discovered that the theological language is quite long and big words and all that. But in essence, every theological frame is still talking about this four-part journey. And then I went from theology into psychology, and I was a Jungian psychologist for many years and discovered, oh, same four-part journey. (laughs) So I had already in the 80s begun to go around in my psychological work and train therapists and psychologists in this understanding of the four-part journey because a lot of psychology does the first three parts of the journey but falls down on the fourth part. So then one of the large awarenesses in my life was tracking this four-partness is that in the year 2000, I then had this moment where I suddenly realized, or the realization came to me, that one of the reasons that the Christian Church has four gospel texts is because each one of those gospel texts is one part of this universal journey. And so having written that book, it's been an entree for me literally to go around the world talking about this four-part journey. It's the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. It's the Jewish story of coming out of Egypt. It's the basis of the Four Gospels for Christianity. It's underneath all the great anthropological rites of initiation. It's in most psychological methods, etc. So I, I had all of that, and I knew that going on the Camino, I prepared myself in the way that one might prepare oneself in an anthropological rite of passage. And I knew that my hearing the summons to the journey is the first part. And I love Campbell's talking about unless you reject the journey or push against it or have a profound doubt and a know about going on the journey, it's probably not deep enough. And that the actual walking of it gives us the trials and the obstacles and the third part, the boon, and all of that might be mixed together. But then coming home was going to be the fourth part. And I knew that it was going to be a rather profound fourth part, probably one of the deepest fourth parts of my life. And it was because I I came back from the Camino and my whole life fell apart. My old life fell apart. Was even though I knew it probably was going to fall apart a little bit, I wasn't prepared for how it was going to fall apart. It crashed. Mm. And I at least had the foreknowledge to know this isn't because the Camino was false. This is because the Camino was true.
1: I look forward to circling back to that, and we'll build our way back to the end of your Camino. But we'll start with the beginning, and my beginning with your book, my first thought when I cracked it open and looked at the table of contents was, why is it, in a book focused on returning from Camino, that we don't actually reach that point of the book until halfway through it. Instead, the book opens with a chapter on things to consider before departing for the beginning of one's Camino. So why is that important? What are you accomplishing in those early parts of your book?
0: The original title, and it might still have been the better title, was Returning from Camino Even Before You Leave. And the reason for it, Dave, is because I want people to do the work of coming home, even if you've already been home five years. It's never too late. However, for me as an author, I wanted to give people the best way to prepare. And the best way to prepare is setting a couple of things in place before you go. Having an attitude even before you go that you know coming home is going to have some challenges and that you want to help the people around you and yourself to give yourself the best circumstances for how to face that, like not perhaps having everybody have that party for you just when you walk in the door. <laughs> you really don't know what state of mind you're going to be in, and, and most of us usually need a little bit of time of coming home before we're ready to have what could be a, a raucous, joyful moment for others, while for us we're like, where did I just wake up? Mm-hmm. Some of the things that i suggest in the book is i suggest people sit down within a day or two of leaving for spain and write yourself a letter about what you think about the calling to go and what you're imagining the journey is going to be like i also suggest once you're at the end of your walking that you write yourself another letter but my experience is, is that when we get home we've largely forgotten what it really felt like to us before we left. It's like our mind states change on the Camino in a very subtle yet dramatic way, and to simply look back to what we were saying to ourselves at the beginning can be quite helpful. I want to give the Pilgrim an attitude both about how to leave, how to walk, and how to come home.
1: And that the work that you do on the front end facilitates everything else that follows, that if you do the pre-work well, that already is going to smooth out the return process, though certainly not finish the job.
0: Right. And I love that quote that I start the book with, which comes from a, the first woman winner of a Nobel Prize in Literature back in 1909. And she said, you can never imagine while on the journey how strange it will be to come home. And I think that's true.
1: At many points in this book, you stress the importance of language. Which words should we be most mindful of when pursuing pilgrimage?
0: You know, I'm an author, and I'm a speaker, and I like to play with language, but I do think that language can help us or can become an obstacle. And one of the things is we don't end the Camino in Spain unless we're from Spain. Where we stop walking is just what I call the turnaround place. It's not where the Camino ends. The Camino starts at your home, and it ends at your home. And so I like for people to realize, and I was listening to your interview with Brad, the war veteran. I love that interview with him and his reminder that the warrior after war has to go home and the often in earlier days, it walking home and all of that time of walking was a time of processing and thinking and preparing to be home. Well, we have the same challenge as pilgrims for most of us because we get to wherever we're going in Spain, we stop walking, and then we get on a bus or a train or, for many of us, a plane. Some of us a boat, and the rapid pace of our transportation does not allow that reflection and integration and pondering time between stopping walking and arriving home. So it's important that many people have talked about how, you know, the Camino, the walking in, but the Camino goes on. But our language doesn't support that because most of us will fall into language of where the Camino ends. And we'll talk about Santiago at the end or Estrada or Meshia or wherever we stop walking as the end of the Camino. Well, that may be true to our stopping walking, but to the internal journey, that's just the turnaround place for the second half of the Camino, which is the journey home. And the journey home can take months to years. I really feel, I just, I'm just having the experience right now, after having walked in 2012, I really feel like it's been just in the last few months that that 2012 Camino has come to a quote-unquote end. So that sense of where we stop walking is a turnaround place. I ask the people who walk with me to refrain from any language about endpoint or destination. Santiago is not a destination. Mushia Pistela is not a destination, except it may be the place that we stop walking. The destination is home and a life renewed.
1: If we apply that, and it makes a lot of sense, how should that change in mindset potentially be reflected in our actions? In other words, if a pilgrim is thinking about Santiago as the turnaround point, how would you advise them to approach that process of arrival at the turnaround point? Are there actions they should take that would put them in the best frame of mind to be thinking of it in those terms?
0: Yes, and it's a slight shift of focus. We're going to have that dinner in Santiago or somewhere (laughs) on the coast, and we're going to toast each other, and there's going to be this sense of accomplishment. But I would like us to frame that as, here we are having completed the first half of the Camino, not here we are having completed the Camino. And it's just that subtle reminder of ourselves that the Camino stretches on far ahead of us. And I celebrate the pain and the sweat and the weeks or the months of walking and all the friendships that I've made. But I keep away from any thought that now it's over. Likewise, there's something that we have to work against. We're all going to go to Santiago we're probably going to go to the pilgrim office. We're going to get our Compostela. We're going to get our certificate of distance. We're going to come home. We're going to frame it maybe. But again, that moment, because we in the West are, are so much about, we've done something, we get our certificate and it wraps it up. Uh, can can we hold that as a significant part of a Camino, which is ongoing, not a certificate that, that marks it's all wrapped up and over, but that, the Camino stretches out long ahead of
1: us. They call the certificate that you get in Sa'agun the halfway Compostela, but I guess you're saying that the one in Santiago should be thought of as the halfway Compostela.
0: I do. And I mean, and I, I love that <laughs> certificate in Sa'agun. I also love the one that you get in Visteta and the one that you get in Mashiach. I've, I've got all of them, and I celebrate them as moments rather than as certificates of completion.
1: One of the things that stands out in your book is the importance of having a companion, a mentor to support you in your processing of the experience. Could you talk more about that?
0: I want to say I know there are many ways to walk the Camino and there are many intentions to walk the Camino. My book is both for people who have any intention to walk to glean from it whatever they may wish or they find helpful. And also, if you want to go on the Camino as a rite of passage, here are some key things to put in place so that it can truly be that rite of passage.
1: Could we pause there for a moment? Because it's an interesting discussion that you have in the book. Could you define what you mean by rite of passage so people have that in mind? And then we'll, we'll circle back to the companion.
0: A rite of passage for me is a journey of inner transformation, where I know that there is something in my life that is not working that I want to change. I want to listen to a greater power spirit, whatever name you have, higher self. I want to listen deeply and I want to perhaps hear anew and I want to be encouraged to do major transitions or changes in how I'm living. That would be much more like a passage rather than on the other end a great walking holiday that I really enjoy. (laughs) And the Camino can be that for people. Mm -hmm. One of my best friends dearly cared for this brother. To him, the Camino is a great walking holiday. And it's like he read my book and he called me up and he said, that book's not for me. I, I, (laughs) I get it. I get it. That book isn't for him. But if you do want this to be a deep or some manner of a change process for you, here are some things to think about and to put in place.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And so let's talk about that piece to put in place, the companion or the mentor.
0: What I'm suggesting is before you go, if you can, or I'll also know that sometimes people will find this person as they walk. It's a person who is there for you, who's a really good listener, and who's willing to have you tell the story over and over and over. And like a good listener, will be able to reflect back to you what you're saying, but also to help you track how the story changes. Because as the story changes, it gives you a lot of information about what this Camino was about for you or for the listener to reflect back to you. You know, you keep telling this one story. Let's listen to this one story. And what's the gift in this one story or what's this one story asking for your life now? So it's just that person who is a good listener, and the other part, I would say, is a person who knows how to listen without censoring. It's a person that you can feel, you can tell all the gritty details to, the upsides and the downsides and the in-between, and you basically can trust that this person is going to hold it with care and not in any way judge you. That often is not a lot of people in our life who can go to that place and sometimes it's not our spouse or even significant other because they can sometimes get caught in their wants for you and not be able to pull back far enough to just simply hold the space of care and listening. So I suggest that you have that one or maybe two people who are jewels of friends and for some people, they actually will go to a professional, though I'm not suggesting that that's necessary, but that it's a person who can deeply listen and reflect back and will track with you the story as it emerges and changes.
1: This is one of your suggestions that really resonated with me. You know, I take high schoolers on the Camino or on other pilgrim roads in the summer, and one of the final messages I have for them is that one of the One of the beauties of being human is that we ultimately can control the narrative. We can choose the stories that we tell about an event. So we can reframe an event in any number of different ways. And so this process that you describe of having the same conversation in the sense of telling the story again and again and again is this very explicit way that we can construct the meaning that we want to carry forward.
0: And also, I lead a small group of pilgrims every fall, and as we stop walking, I'm always sort of helping them frame for themselves. Okay, what are the humorous, funny stories? What are the food stories? What are the albergue stories? What are the stories that you're going to have in your library to tell the friends at home who want the travel log? And understand that that's really what most people want, because unless you've got a deep transformative experience in your life. You don't know how to hang with the other story. And then <laughs> there's the other story, which I really want you to keep a bit more hidden. It's a jewel. And if you give that jewel too soon, sometime others, not because they mean to be malicious, but they try to take it away from you because they don't understand it.
1: What are reasonable and unreasonable goals to have for a pilgrimage? It seems like sometimes... A person's experience suffers from the burden of high expectations. What can pilgrimage be to
0: us? Great question, Dave. (laughs) You really have to ask me that question. All right. Um, (laughs) It depends on where you are in your life. It's like for some people, pilgrimage is a profound time-out time, which is about a mental and emotional and maybe even a spiritual clean-out And I think almost everyone who goes on the Camino for a certain period of time is going to experience that sense of having shed all the usual financial duty obligations back at home and that you might discover a new aliveness or a new freshness in yourself. I think that that, to me, is sort of a minimum basis for pilgrimage. And then from that would be depending on your willingness to listen deeply and look at issues. It can be a profound time of psychological and spiritual transformation. As a psychologist and therapist, I decided to stop work in the office because I loved what I saw taking people on the Camino for 30 to 60 days. I saw them open up to a possibility of a new life, in a more profound way, in, in a more efficient way, in some ways, than hours upon hours upon hours in the office. But that's not every pilgrim. Pilgrimage is everything from physical and emotional renewal to deep spiritual transformation.
1: One of the most common conversations that I need to have with my students after they get back, and we're talking two, three months down the road, is the profound sense of loss and a nagging Anxiety that somehow they have failed in their pilgrimage because they have gone back to life as it was before. They're on their phone, they're going back through the same routine, all of the old dynamics are in place. And so now they carry a sense of guilt that they have failed. What would you say to that student or that person? Because certainly it's true to many pilgrims.
0: I think it's true to most pilgrims. I won't say all, but but most. Mm-hmm. And Campbell is very instructive here, at least instructive for me, about that return home is about a profound sense of loss and that we are going to, quote-unquote, fail the vision of what we got on the Camino over and over and over again, which is why we need that letter that we wrote at the end of our walking and why we need the mentor or the companion who keeps gently striking the bell and waking us up, remember, remember, remember. Phil Kuznow in his beautiful book on the altar program, talks. I think that last chapter he talks about how to remember to remember, because the return home is about amnesia. And so I want to make it normal. That sense of loss is normal. That sense of regret, that sense of, oh, no, I've lost the vision or I failed a vision is normal. But the question is, in that moment of loss, go back, touch the energy of the Camino, start again, start again, start again. Have that one or two people in your life that you make a commitment to, that they will keep asking the question, they'll keep holding the mirror up, they'll keep walking alongside of you. I will say it's taken me seven years to integrate the Camino in 2012. And there have been long stretches of amnesia in those seven years. And yet here I am now in 2019, and I feel like I've fully woken up to what that Camino asked me. But it was a millennia journey.
1: My last question that I had scripted out for you was to talk about your own experience because, you know, you wrote the book. It would be easy for people reading it to think, well, here's the expert. This is the guy (laughs) who knows how to do this. And so I was wondering if you had stumbled in any parts of the process, but you've said multiple times, seven years, and coming back was really difficult. So talk about
0: that. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book because here's the guy who failed every task. <laughs> so, I mean that, but I, did, but I didn't let the failure define the journey. I let the failure wake me up and start again, wake me up and start again. For me, what happened was I had the honor I me mean, say that in quotes, <laughs> of, of having Harper won by my book in 2008 and release this volume in 2010. And I suddenly had to go before large press and all manner of PR ma- machinery, et cetera. And I wasn't prepared for it. And it chewed me up and I lost myself and I was broken. I lost who I was. I lost what I wanted to say. I was listening to so many people tell me how you do this, what you say, how you face this community, what you say on, on this national broadcast, et cetera. I didn't know who Alexander was anymore. I didn't know what I wanted to share with others. And I was empty. And I went on the Camino because I knew I was empty. And I needed to find, I needed to find myself again. I needed to find my own voice, my original voice. And I also knew that out there around the edges was a whole new way to organize my life, my home, my relationships, etc. First of all, I came back, came home from the Camino sick, which I thought of as a sacred illness. I think I mentioned a little bit of that in the book was I had walked for 49 days and not really had anything more than a few blisters and a little bit of knee problems and I'm standing at the Madrid airport, and I lift up my backpack to put it on the track, and my shoulder popped. And I crumpled on the floor right there at the Madrid airport in pain. And I still had to get on the plane in flight all the way back to the United States in pain, and got home and got to a doctor and started on some pain relief. But I I was in bed for five weeks, just crippled. That five weeks actually was a sacred wound because it slowed me down. And even though I was in pain, I had the time to begin to think back over the walk, and what had been awakened, and what I thought were the first steps. Then the next piece was, I lost a significant book contract. And I had to understand that most likely that was because that contract was to the Alexander who was before I started walking the Camino and didn't fully reflect my voice now. And so I had to go on a journey to find out what did I really want to say? What did I really believe? What was in my gut? Not what was in my head, what was in my gut? And how was I going to say that to others? In the middle of that, I started dating someone and I thought that this was the great love of my life and it actually ended up being a very wounding relationship, which taught me again about what was being healed, that that relationship was teaching me about the woundedness that had been in the last few relationships and that that wasn't a way to move forward. And then the the next thing was, is that I decided to move out of my house and downsize. And for a long time, my health sat on the market. The market wasn't very good. I was really stretched financially. All of this was part of the process of shedding the Alexander before I started walking. And it wasn't the climb to Osabrero physically, but it was the climb to Osabrero emotionally or psychologically, or or it was that path over the mountain to Runcevalles. And I kept thinking back to the Camino, the Camino of the time I was walking and remembering I did that that day because I chose to simply put one foot in front of the next, one foot in front of the next. That's the same attitude I'm going to walk through all of this chaos and crumbling. I'm just going to put one foot of the next. I came to know there was a path. It wasn't as clear as looking for the yellow arrows, but there was a path. And I didn't ask greater power to show me more than just the next step. And I just learned to trust. Through a couple of years, as everything crumbled, that all of it was crumbling because it was the old Alexander. It wasn't part of the new.
1: Congratulations on completing your journey, or at least this part of it.
0: Thank you. Another one has begun, but thank you.
1: Well, thank you as well for speaking with me, Alexander, and, and for your book. I think a lot of people will find it useful, and I appreciate your candor and your willingness to talk through the process in so much detail.
0: Dave, it's been an honor, and uh, thank you for your work. You're helping me.
1: Ginny Bartolone is an actor and writer from New York City who has written about her Camino experiences on her blog, maybe there will be cupcakes.com, which is a great name, and in a much read article published through ExoJane. Thanks for joining me to talk about your experiences, Ginny.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dave. I'm always happy to talk about the Camino. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that's true for almost every Camino veteran, right?
2: <laughs> Anyone who's willing to start the conversation, I am ready to talk.
1: Yeah. So let's just start from the beginning. What's your pilgrimage history? What brought you to the Camino? And which routes have you walked?
2: I have walked the Camino Frances from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port to Santiago twice. I first did it in 2009 when I had just graduated college. And then there was an eight-year break, I realized that I needed to go back, found a way to go back. And did the same route from Saint-Jean to Santiago in 2017. After that, I was just hooked and started planning the next one. So about a month ago, I got back from doing the central Portuguese route. So I walked from Porto to Santiago. I learned about the Camino in an interesting way, actually, through my college. I took a class on the Camino de Santiago. Hmm. We had these courses. I went to a, a small liberal arts college in New Jersey. And we had these courses where... You would pick a topic and one semester study that topic that had to do with a specific country and a few subjects. And then during the winter or summer break, you would go to that country for three weeks. It was almost through a fluke of scheduling that I ended up taking the class on the Camino. I was genuinely interested in the topics, which were primarily history and comparative religion, but I was a theater major. So this was a chance to totally check out of everything else I was studying. When they gave the pitch for the Camino one, I'm like, this is so different for me. It's just so unique. I can't think of any reason that I've ever really like, thought about going to Spain for whatever reason. So I took the class, and the first time I went to the Camino was actually by bus. And we went to some of the major cities along the Frances route. We went down into southern Spain, looked at some of the historical areas down there. But I had no intention when I studied the Camino to walk it. I saw the hikers going by and all this, and I thought they were so different from who I was. So it was after college when my roommate said that she was going to go walk the Camino that something clicked in my brain. And I asked her if I could join her. And it was just that part of my life when I had that space to go.
1: That's really neat. And it's interesting. It seems like a lot of people, when they've had that positive first experience and then they want to go back it's two three four years later you had an eight-year gap so that's a lot of time at a point when the Camino was really developing very quickly how different was that experience eight years later
2: it could not have been more different both in very good ways and both in very challenging ways as far as the Camino itself I was so excited to see it doing so well I am in the camp of the Camino can become super popular and spread out. I know there's a lot of concern about the Camino becoming overcrowded, which I understand. But seeing it in 2009, when there were far fewer of us, though it was still growing at that point, the idea that so many people had found out about this by the time I hit 2017 was just the biggest joy I could imagine. And seeing all of these little towns that we walked through— totally built up and full of far more people felt like a different world to me in a very healthy way it also really helped me to have the option to have a smartphone and to book ahead in 2017. in 2009 for the most part mainly because we were also trying to spend money we were only staying in public albergues which were great were fine but there were far fewer beds in each town so the whole waiting in line and hoping you'd get a bed was a daily thing for us Whereas now there are so many private albergues that you can pretty much trust, I will probably find a space. So though there are more people, there are far more beds. And I actually found it a lot easier in that respect in 2017, knowing that we wouldn't have to arrive by 1 p.m., line up our backpacks and hope that we got a bed in the one public hostel. That change I really enjoyed. As far as me as a person, there's such a difference, I assume, for most people between the age of 22 and 29. I was just at a whole different mindset. My finances were a little bit more set, especially from 22. I had lived in apartments, had moved, had had a bit of a life, had lived in New York and New Jersey at that point. So going on a hike, once you're just a little bit more comfortable about how you live your life out of college, was a little bit easier. The thing that was much harder for me is, for whatever reason, in 2017, I had pretty much every physical problem that one could have (laughs) with a hike. I had horrible blister problems. I had ankle problems, knee problems, issues with the heat, issues with food. Like It was a really difficult physical experience for me compared to 2009. The two experiences to me are completely night and day. And I wouldn't say that one is better than the other. They were just such different learning experiences that... It was the same route and everything felt different to me in, you know, a shocking way and looking back a wonderfully shocking way because it was such a different kind of adventure for me. So I wouldn't take anything back from the second one, which was more difficult, though I know it's easier for me to say that now that I'm in the comfort of my own home and not doing it.
1: So let's go back to that first experience then, 2009, and that's how I discovered you and I think how probably a lot of people have encountered you through that exo-Jane reflection. And it's a wonderfully candid reflection, unpacking the impact of the experience on your mental and physical health. So before we get to the Camino itself, could you share what your personal background was with anxiety heading into that first walk?
2: I didn't have the language at that point in my life to understand that both anxiety and depression were something that I was dealing with. I knew that, you know, I'd had some struggles growing up when I was a kid that I needed to work through, but I was always of the belief that you could kind of just say, like, I've worked through it, I'm done, and that stuff is behind me, and you could make a big declaration, and that stuff would just be gone. (laughs) And when I went on the Camino Something shifted for me as far as the way that I saw myself and the way that I saw that I treated myself and the way that I dealt with difficult emotions and things like that. I think both the physical setup of the Camino and the daily structure of having to do that routine over and over and over again, for me, it broke down a lot of the tools that I was using to ignore the issues that I had. The Camino didn't necessarily... Fix anything that I was going through; it more just made everything very, very clear. I spent so much time with my mind doing this difficult thing that I realized, okay, no, things are not okay. And I walked with a very good friend of mine, who I'm still very close with, who has always been a big cheerleader for going to therapists, getting the kind of professional support you need. And I was always very uncomfortable with that. I'd seen one therapist before that, but it was not something that I thought I needed long term. And walking with her and just being on the trip in general, by the end of it, it was very clear, like, no, I need to work through this over a long period of time. And no Camino, no big declaration of I am healed is going to just switch the way that my brain works. The Camino to me was an identity turning point. Seeing this is an ongoing journey and that's okay, and it's going to take some time to kind of figure out where... I can find these ways to be healthy in the long term. But that took a long time. I was definitely not in that mindset right before I left for the Camino on it, even the few months afterwards. And that's kind of the interesting thing about the ExoJane article is everything feels to me, looking back on it as a writer, summed up very quickly and nicely of like, I discovered this about myself, I discovered mental health issues, I came home and I fixed it. (laughs) And it's, it's interesting as a writer working with an editor and knowing that you have to work within a certain amount of space and that you have to tell a bit of a story from start to end that people will click on and read. But now as someone who's developed my writing a bit more, I look back on that article and I'm like, oh, that's such a small, nicely wrapped up snapshot of what the real reality was, is that it took me probably about those eight years in between the two Caminos to look back and see how I had physically and mentally changed and how one thing led to the next. It's that retrospect that made me realize that I was nowhere near that mindset when I first got home.
1: So when people read the headline of that piece, I physically and emotionally broke down on the Camino de Santiago, but left with less anxiety and depression, it sounds like a miracle cure. And you're saying it wasn't quite that tight. I
2: remember when they posted that article, when I saw it online was the first time I saw that title. My husband and I just cackled because (laughs) A, it was such a long title and B, it was almost the opposite of what I was trying to say in the article itself. You know, I guess technically in the long run, I left with a lot of the tools to help me through the depression and anxiety, which are, you know, two very separate experiences that can affect one another. But I don't think I left with less of either. I want to say I almost left being aware of more of it. But because I knew and I had the support to come back and eventually find professional help is why eventually I came home with less of it, like when I was home for some time. Over the years, I've seen a lot of people post in Facebook forums and Camino forums questions of like, hey, I just got home. I'm having a bit of a rough time. Has anyone else experienced this? It seems to be 50-50. I see a lot of people who very lovingly say things like, think about your wonderful experience. It was really great. You have no reason to be sad. Or just planning your next Camino is a big one that I see. I think all of those have wonderful intentions. And I always try to just jump in and say, you're not alone in feeling that way. Each of my Caminos, I've come home and I have hit almost on schedule a slump mentally. And each time I come back, I've known beforehand just to kind of set up a structure for myself for when that happens. And everyone's going to have a different experience with that. But for me, I try to schedule as many meetings as I can with friends over coffee. I make sure that I know exactly what I'm doing professionally because I'm a freelancer and that can give you a lot more time to think about things, which is not always good. For me, it's about creating a good structure when I get home because I know I'm going to go into a bit of a letdown after each Camino and that after the letdown, there tends to be a wonderful upswing that lasts for years. It's knowing that that is the cycle for me and letting other people know like it's okay if you have a strange cycle when you come home of emotions and that it's okay to reach out for support in whatever way you need it.
1: Your most recent post, as we're talking in November 2019, is about reentry and you describe your two selves in that post, the pilgrimage self and the other self. Can you talk more about that framing and what you're trying to get at there?
2: It's something that I'm still working through and my personal blog has been a wonderful place for me to kind of get through those emotions and then just know that they're out there in a public place. For some reason that helps me structure them better when I know there's gonna be an audience I'm still slightly working through that idea of the two selves. The thing that I'm struggling with is I find that when I go on the Camino, I get into this identity that I feel very confident with, especially this last one on the Camino Portuguese. I knew what to pack for myself. I knew that I would have the things I needed to have. I knew what time to get up in the morning. I still hit constant struggles and new things every single day, but I found such joy in them because I had had proof from the past Caminos that I knew how to find support, I knew how to look out for myself when I had to look out for myself and things like that. There's this confidence in that identity that I have there, where I really feel like I settle into my mind and my body. And it's funny, because two times now on the Camino, I've been talking with Camino family members that you find as you walk, and a few times I've said at home I'm much more introverted than I am here. And at both times I've had interesting reactions to that. People have said, I can't imagine you being introverted because here you seem much more comfortable to talk and to open up. When I get back home, I realize that I do slip back into an identity that I have built up in my life here. I grew up as an actor and my parents worked in theater and you know, identified myself as a working actor from when I was about eight years old and on. When I reached college and then when I graduated college, you get hit with reality if you're not a child actor anymore and you're managing your own career. And within those first few years, I completely shifted my idea of myself as maybe I'm not an actor. Maybe this is not what aligns with myself as a person and with my values and with just what I want to do with my lifestyle. But within New York and within my group of friends that I've known for years, I still hold on to a lot of that identity. of I'm an actor, I'm a struggling artist. I don't know what my direction is. I have this nervousness, this anxiety about who I am. So doing that switch when I come back home into this world where people know me as that other identity, I find this friction that I don't know how to bridge. And I know that a lot of that has to just do with the world that the Camino creates. You are around these people that are walking with you, who you can have the most candid, enriching conversations with, and you've known them for 10 minutes. You can have that at home, but there's far more space and there's far more disconnect between people in the regular living of your life when you're at home because you know, you're not on a trail on this spiritual journey. It's just the nature of it. So for me, it's about kind of figuring out where those two identities can meet and become someone who is just me, no matter where I am.
1: Yeah, and some people might posit that the self that you're describing on pilgrimage is the new self that you're trying to construct, that you're sort of stuck in the old self in the quote real world. Do you buy that notion or do you see both of those selves having validity and importance to who you are?
2: I think they both have to have validity. For me, it's all been about how I can make both worlds help the other one. So when I'm here, I wanna use the things that I've learned on the Camino to help me be more confident and comfortable and fine with the daily life of, I'm just metaphorically walking another 20, 25K today. Like this is just another day where I can go forward, I can do things, but it might not be some momentous thing. There are wonderful things that can happen in the real world every single day if we stay present in it. When I'm on the Camino, It's funny because whenever I'm there, I miss the comforts of home and I miss being near my husband and being near my friends. But being there, I want to bring my enthusiasm for living in New York and for my artistic self and my writing self that I have here there so that they do blend into one person. Because the danger that seems to come up is that when I hit this slump after the Camino, there's that question of, well, is that my total self? Should I give up on all of this, move to Spain, open an Elbert (laughs) family? Because I have met people who have done that, and it's definitely made them very, very happy, and it's been right for them. I met a man on the, the second Camino who I see post a lot on the Facebook forum. He always says, like, the Camino changed my life, and he came home, sold his house, and he's in retirement age, but he just walks Camino after Camino after Camino, and he knew that that self was going to be 100% of him from then on. For me, if I focus too much of it on it when I'm at home and I ask those questions too often, I start to disconnect from my life here. I don't want to do that. Like, I know I don't actually want to throw everything out the window and, and leave. I do like the idea of a new self, but I don't think that the old one for me, needs to be completely thrown out the window because it was that self that got me on the Camino in the first place. It's that self that got me to come back and to be a person who lives both lives in the long term as long as I physically can and financially can.
1: Lots of people find themselves on the Camino with at least some sort of therapeutic objective, whether that's a clinical condition or a pivotal life experience that they're trying to process or just some emotional uncertainty about where they're headed in life. And you touched on this a little bit and acknowledging that it's not gonna be formulaic and the same for everyone. What have you learned in your three walking Caminos about how the experience can be effective for facing some of these challenges? And what are some practices that you've found while on Camino that make it particularly effective, that make it enriching and even healing as you walk?
2: I think when you come home, all of those tools start to become clearer and clearer the farther, at least for me, the farther you get away from the Camino about things that were incredibly helpful in the moment that become these kind of overarching themes of walking it itself. One of the biggest ones for me is just this almost forced gentleness on yourself that you have to have. Where every time I would try to push myself to go more kilometers than I thought I should have, or walk faster up a hill, or not stop and take a drink of water, or not stop and get a cup of coffee. That's when something would either physically or mentally kind of break in me, when I did not give myself the space to rest. The Camino kind of naturally puts you down a notch. (laughs) If you try to force yourself to do something that is incredibly unhealthy, you usually see the immediate effects of that. And you really learn about the cause and effect of if I'm gentle with myself, I do go farther in the long run. And if I push myself too far, I'm going to have to stop. That is a big thing for me coming back. When I need the space and when I sense that I need time alone or I need time away from a certain job or I'm pushing myself too hard, if I don't rest, it's all going to be down the drain. And if I just give myself a little bit of space, then physically, energy-wise, creatively, I'm going to be able to create far more than if I was if I had just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. The other thing I think is just this incredible honesty with the people around you. When I was walking into Santiago the last day on the Camino Portuguese, this one I just left, I realized that I had about eight kilometers left until the whole thing was over, which was different for me because the last Camino was 12 hiking days, whereas the two Camino Franceses were 35 each. So it was just a different mindset of the awareness of like, oh my gosh, I've reached the end and I'm about to leave Camino world. I kind of stopped in the woods and got really emotional. I wanted to return this branch that I had been walking with as a walking stick. And I put that down and got all emotional about the stick and the whole thing. And this girl I had never met before caught up with me. And we started having this lovely conversation. And it was very casual about our backgrounds and things like that. And within an hour, I realized I had five kilometers left or four or whatever at that point. And I I said to her, I love that we're chatting right now, but I think I need to be alone for this last hour. There was no question. She was like, oh totally, yeah, you you do it. I'll just run up there and I'll see you in Santiago. There was no question that I had maybe insulted her or anything like that. And if I had been at home for years of my life, I have this natural, could be, you know, primarily a female thing that I tend to do of I need to apologize. I need to make everybody around me very comfortable. And I'm trying to do that less and less because of the idea of I'm not telling people what I need. So moments like that where you're just in tune with what your mind needs to have a fuller experience and kindly ask those around you to allow you to have that. That is something the Camino has definitely left me with. The biggest one is the awe and the awareness that you completed this thing that seemed so terrifying and so impossible when you started. When I was in Porto this past time, I spent two nights in Porto before I started hiking. And I fell in love with Porto. And I realized that since this was the first Camino that I walked completely by myself, there was literally nothing making me do the Camino. Not like my friends did in the past. They didn't force me to do it, but I had a responsibility to walk with them because I said I would. Whereas this one, I was like, I could stay in Porto for the next two weeks until my flight. And just be here and probably spend too much money or maybe stay in a hostel and, you know, eat very little every day and just enjoy the city. But I don't have to start walking north. I remember the morning that I left the hotel, I stayed at a hotel before I started walking. The the man at the front desk was like, can I get you a taxi? Because he didn't realize I was hiking. And it was in that moment that I was like, no, I'm I'm not giving up this fast. But I walked outside. I'm like, no, I'm going now. Like now that I've walked out the door, here I go. And... There's so many moments in the real world when you're on the precipice of starting something and you realize, I don't have to do this. I still have an out because I'm terrified of doing the thing that I've decided to do. And then with the Camino, it's like, no, I'm just going to walk at the door and I'm going to start. And if I need an out, then it'll be there later. But I'm just going to start moving and then realize that I'm on it. And that is less terrifying than the anxiety of doing it.
1: That's great. I want to finish with a question that calls back to a comment you made earlier, how when you're sometimes looking on Camino forums online and people are talking about the difficulty of reentry, that one of the comments that they get is just start planning your next Camino. (laughs) And so with no judgment here, obviously, of others and the choices they make, and of course you've returned twice, when is planning the next Camino, and this is really coming from that perspective of healing and doing the personal work that a lot of us want to do on our Camino experiences, when is planning the next Camino experience useful and potentially a step forward in that process? And when is it potentially a distraction or somehow just not in service to those goals?
2: That is the million dollar question for me. (laughs) Because at the moment, just the way that our lives are lining up, my husband and I are planning one for next year. He wants to walk his first one after hearing me talk about it for 10 years. After 2020, we see that window closing for various reasons. It Also, there's a whole year in 2021, and I think I want to have a few less crowds. 2020 just makes the most sense for us. So my actual answer to that is emotionally, I'm not sure. And I assume that it changes throughout your life, and it changes for every single person. When I got home from the one in 2017, for two years, it was just one of those things where event after event after event that my husband and I had to overcome. We have like a very dear friend of ours who was ill. I dealt with some health issues. We had a terrible apartment that we moved from. Like it was little event after event, and then about a year and a half into that, I realized that I had a window again where I could go into a short Camino for a very affordable amount of money because I was going myself and I wanted to live very simply on the Camino, and just knew that that was the comfort I needed at that point. And knew that it would be so important to me to go alone, opposed to with a friend. And it just happened to be a really healthy choice. But I think that was a risk that I took to not know if maybe I was just distracting myself from life and shifting immediately into Camino world again. So when people write on forums like just start planning your next one, I don't know if there's anything wrong with planning your next one, if that's an option for you. I think it's the word just (laughs) that's a problem of like, I will plan my next Camino, but you're almost forced to still process the one that you just came back from. Maybe the next Camino is helping you process the one that you just came back from. But I think it's important to recognize the things that you're going through during the reentry process and really recognizing them as very real. And very important, the same way that you would process getting through any kind of large life event and not saying, I will use something else as a distraction. But if it's a tool that's going to help you move forward in that journey, then that's wonderful. For me, it feels weird to immediately think about starting the Camino process over again since I just got the whole celebratory feeling of reaching Santiago. I got there, and my husband's like, Great, we'll be back soon. I was like, Oh boy. <laughs> The idea of starting from the beginning is very daunting. And two weeks away from the Camino, I'm already gung-ho to just say, yes, let's start that process anew because we can. And that's incredible that we can. And I don't know when else in life that window will open again. So it feels like grabbing an opportunity that is available to us and feeling like it's a new and totally different Camino because they always are different, but also because it's with my husband. I am still very much going through the process of coming home from both the 2017 and this Camino from a month ago. So to answer your question, I think it's just the word just. I think it has to be paired with the ongoing care for yourself of processing. And if a new Camino is part of that, then wonderful. But if it's a distraction, then that can get a little bit tricky.
1: Thank you, Jenny. Thank you for talking with me about your experiences on the road.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for asking. This has been helpful for me and just wonderful to talk about it.
1: It's important at this point to underscore something Alexander said. This episode is not meant to be prescriptive, nor to assert that there is one correct way of conducting a pilgrimage. If all of this sounds overwrought or like we're overcomplicating a good thing, then keep doing you and don't look back. The Camino is big enough to absorb all kinds of different motivations. If, however, you are struggling to bring the boon home, to see through the changes in your life that you hope to achieve, then I hope you find Alexander and Ginny's stories to be sources of encouragement. The Camino can be walked in days or weeks, But the larger journey may not be completed for months or even years. If you have stumbled in that process, if you have lost momentum, if you have felt despair that you lost out on something precious, well, it's not over. Keep walking, pilgrim. That's it for this episode. Thanks again to Alexander John Shia. You can find him at quadratus, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-O-S dot com. His book, Returning from Camino, is available from his site and online bookstores Been everywhere. Thanks as well country. to Ginny Bartolone. You can find her writings at MaybeThereWillBeCupcakes.com. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at com. Thank you as always for listening.